0: Welcome to another episode of the Everything College Basketball Podcast, your home for the latest news and analysis from the world of college hoops. Back again are your hosts, Josh Burton, Phil Dexter, and Corey Gardner.
1: What is up, you guys? It's welcome back to another edition of the Everything College Basketball Podcast, episode 117. I'm, of course, your host, Josh Burton, and joining me yet again is my teammate, Phil Dexter. Phil? How's it hanging in Raleigh?
0: It's going good, man. It's another hot summer day, but we're about to get a little bit of cooler weather this weekend. So Can't wait to uh, maybe actually get outside and enjoy the outdoors for a few days.
1: Bro, it is finally after this heat wave. The last couple days, it's been rain. It's kind of came down in like the lower 80s, high 70s. It finally feels pretty good here after that. Like I was over the heat. Like I cannot wait till basketball weather. I'm over the heat.
0: No, exactly. I mean, it's to the point here where you can't even go outside for more than a few minutes. I mean, it's 100 degrees every day. So even 85 degrees or whatever it's supposed to be this weekend will definitely be a nice break.
1: Yeah. And I waited because we had so much rain. I waited to mow my yard. Get out there to mow it yesterday. And from the the thick grass, my lawnmower decides to shit out basically in the backyard. (laughs) I get the front yard mowed. Perfect. Get to the backyard, hit some of the thicker grass. The lawnmower says, I'm done with you today imagine that
0: it's always the way of it man always the way of it
1: dude if it's not one thing it's another but you know what we do we keep it moving here um we've came off a a string of successful guests we've mentioned it we've had david williamson one of the best guards in the country at wake forest join us a couple episodes ago we've had a pair of four star recruits join us rakeith passmore um and silas Demery. Dude, we've been on a roll. Tonight is another big guest. I So many stories I want to delve into. A lot of legacy and tradition dating back decades. We will get to our special guest here in a minute. But Phil, as always, got to send out a special shout out to our title sponsor, BCB, this year. Beauty to Beast Nutrition, located in downtown Edinburgh, Indiana. It is a healthy juice bar. They have your skinny shot teas, your protein coffees, which I grabbed one this morning because I needed a kick in the ass and Dude, that, that coffee! I got the white chocolate caram or caramel one, so smooth, good for you. We got to thank our friends and sponsors at Beauty to Beast Nutrition. And by the way, if you stop in, tell the owner Natasha that ECB sent you. You'll get a flat ten percent off your entire purchase. You'll see it at the bottom ticker as we are live as always on the Facebook, Twitter, and the ECB official YouTube page. But we can't. We say it all the time. We can't thank Natasha and Beauty to Beast Nutrition for coming on board this year been the title sponsor of everything college basketball
0: absolutely thank you so much to natasha can't wait to get rolling this season with them on board um you post that cherry blossom tea all the time man and it looks delicious um so i <laughs> Dude, cannot wait to try so... it when i get out there one of these days
1: Dude, it is so good, and it's good for you is the good thing about it. I know we talk about it a lot, but it's so good for you. you normally, teas are loaded with sugar and all the stuff that makes stuff good, but this is good tasting and good for you. So, again, holler at your, our friends and sponsors, Beauty to Beast Nutrition, located in downtown Enderburg, Indiana. Tell me CB sent you, flat 10% off, can't beat that. Before we get our special guest, because I'm so excited to talk to this gentleman tonight, Phil, we have had live basketball back in our television sets last night. The University of Kentucky opened up their Bahamas tour last night with a resounding win. We won't get into all of it, but how nice is it to have live college basketball back?
0: Yeah, even if it's preseason, man. I mean, we're both kind of basketball junkies. So it's just, like you said, it's just nice to find some hoops on somewhere. I'll watch the European Championships. I'll watch preseason college basketball. It doesn't matter. If there's hoops on, I'm going to watch it. Oh,
1: for sure once they're done this weekend we'll we'll do a special episode kind of recapping a bunch of the overseas tours but tonight's all about our special guest, ladies and gentlemen ecb family joining us tonight our guest tonight is the former head coach of the the university of massachusetts he coached there from 1981 to 1983 he also served as assistant head coach for stanford and was in the same role for the legendary digger phelps at notre dame oh and if that wasn't enough, he was teammates with this guy you may have heard of, the legendary Dr. J, and also this other guy you may have heard of, Rick Patino, in his UMass playing days. Tonight, we welcome to the ECB family, Mr. Tom McLaughlin. Tom, how are you tonight, my friend? Oh, it's
2: great to be here. And uh, anytime you talk about college basketball, it's always uh, good to, to remember back in the day when people used to play uh, for the love of the game. And now it's gotten to a, a point where a lot of kids are playing to get an NIL deal. And it's really has changed. And you said, Kentucky played last night. I watched the game and, uh, I know John Calipari very well. And John is a a great, great individual. And, and at the university of Massachusetts, they just had a statue uh, unveiled for John and for Julius Erving, Marcus Camby and Jack Lehman who coached me at, at UMass. And, uh, John has always been loyal to the university and, and when Jack Lehman passed away unexpectedly, one of the first people to come back to Amherst and uh, talk to his wife, Rita was John Calipari. And then uh, a year later, we had a, uh, a remembrance of coach at a, uh, the new England basketball hall of fame. And I asked John if he could show up and John didn't want any money to show up. He just showed up and he didn't have, let us pay for his room. Didn't let us do anything. Uh, so you can't say anything wrong about John Calipari in my book.
1: So it's no secret that everybody who's been with us for five years now that I'm obviously a Kentucky fan. I cover them very um, favorably. Not necessarily favorably. That's the wrong word. I carry cover them very fairly. Never let any kind of fandom get in the way. But th- there is a side of Calipari since we're on the topic of it. Everybody either either love him or hate him, it seems like. And you've led off with some very um, good stories about him. And we see what's happening in Eastern Kentucky right now with the flooding. He made sure to get the telethons. He's done that with Western Kentucky at the end of December last year with the tornadoes. He's done it with Haiti. Tell us, if you can, some of those stories that people who may have a bias against Coach Cal maybe don't see, like the, the humanitarian side of Coach Cal. Well, the, the thing
2: about John is just what he did for Jack Lehman coming back. And also Rita Lehman, who lost her husband unexpectedly to a heart attack. John Calipari, after Kentucky won the NCAA championship, got Rita, Rita Lehman a ring, a championship ring from the University of Kentucky. Uh, he also, uh, any golf outing or anything like that, he'll show up at. And his own kids, he sent his his daughter to, uh, to UMass as a student, a regular student. And his son... Went to high school back there. So he's been very loyal. And, and, uh, you know, you hear the stuff about his recruiting and and, uh, things like that, and it can sort of turn you off a little bit. But uh, I'll tell you, when he zones in on a kid, he gets that kid. It's like uh, Marcus Camby. I asked Marcus Camby. I said, hey, Marcus, how the heck did you end up at UMass? Because Marcus was from East Hartford, which is about 30 minutes from the uh, UConn campus and Jimmy Calhoun. And Marcus said to me, when Coach Cal came in his living room and sat down with his mother, his mother said to Marcus, you're going to play for this guy. And uh, all I know is the good things about John. Uh, I just know uh, he's a good friend. And if I call him and ask him for something, he's willing to help.
1: I I think the My favorite quote, which it was brought up again a couple weeks ago when Kentucky secured another uh, five-star kid who's reclassifying, joining the roster this year. But my favorite quote, he said it about eight years ago in regards to recruiting and especially being at Kentucky. You can recruit a kid his entire life and be the favorite, but if I want that kid, I will come into his home and I will lock him down and I will take him from you. Whenever I want it, whenever I want a player and Kentucky eats, Kentucky's always going to eat first. And I think that's beautiful. And it sums up coach Cal because he seems so motivated now after a few for Kentucky fans and standards, especially, you know, not the greatest um, postseason run should we say, but he seems very motivated again on the recruiting trail. And I just think that's apropos of kind of the, we all hear about the coach Cal swagger. I mean, if he wants a guy, there's no stopping him from getting it, and I feel like that's just kind of a, a good summation of who he is. If you look, if
2: you look at John and, and see what happens when he was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame, he had guys from UMass, Memphis, and Kentucky there on stage with him, uh, and he's loyal to all those programs, and he's been uh, he's been that way his whole life.
1: Last thing on Coach Cal before I let Phil take over because I know he has a lot he wants to talk to you about. Um, when all that happened at UMass back in the day with Marcus Camby and then he bolts to go to the Nets, um, what was the feeling of, of from the UMass fan base at the time about him? And how has that maybe changed now as we sit here in 2022? Well, the fan base
2: was just excited because what he did is uh, when I was playing, there was a 4,500-seat uh, arena they played in, gym, basically. And he took it where they got a Mullen Center, which is a 10,000-seat state-of-the-art arena and he, uh, built the program by himself. I mean, he, he bootstrapped it on everything and he just built the whole program and they, they uh, they have been, uh, very, very successful when John got there and, uh, they continued for a while with Bruiser Flint, who was an assistant to John at, at Kentucky. So, uh, it's John, John did a lot for the, for the pioneer Valley, as they call it. And, uh, He's always remembered fondly because of his loyalty to the university.
1: Uh, real quick, Phil it brings up one last thing. It's funny. The, the <laughs> Calipari, John Calhoun, uh, or Jim Calhoun, where Jim Calhoun says he can't even pre- he don't even know what clam chowder is. He can't even say yeah. clam chowder, and he said he's going to run the New England area. <laughs> well, uh, John, when he he, uh, he
2: created a nightmare for uh, for Calhoun, where Calhoun was on top of the whole world there, and him and, uh, well, usually it's UConn and Providence, and John took UMass right to the top.
0: Phil? Yeah, so I want to, you know, go back a ways and get into your playing days a little bit. So you started off at Tennessee and end up transferring out after your freshman season. What led, you know, for to your transfer from Tennessee, and then how did you end up at UMass?
2: Well, when I went to Tennessee, there was uh Ray Mears was a famous coach. He was the coach of Tennessee. And he had an assistant, Stu Aberdeen, who was a really dynamite type guy and very active. And Stu had recruited me out of New York and, and it was unusual for a New York kid to go down to Tennessee at the time. And I went down there and, and I led the freshman team in scoring average over eighteen points a game. And I just never felt comfortable with Coach Mears. I just, you had to make an appointment to see him and call his secretary and things like that. And, and it just, in, my, in the middle of my sophomore year, I said, I'm going back home. And I ended up transferred to UMass. And uh, it was uh, kind of funny how I ended up at UMass. I was going to go to Boston College or U- UConn. And then uh, Jack Donnie, who was the coach at Holy Cross, said, you should take a look at UMass. And I went up and met with this guy, Julius Irving. And we sat and talked. And uh, I ended up going to UMass, met my wife of 47 years and uh, have four kids and 10 grandkids. And uh, it was probably the best decision I ever made.
1: So was it more the culture just not being used to the Southern style and way of things? Or was it more just you didn't have that connection you thought you did with Coach Mears? Well, no, you're playing in the
2: Southeastern Conference, you're going to Florida, you're going to Kentucky, you're going to Vanderbilt and playing on the stage there at Vanderbilt. And it was exciting, but my folks couldn't get to the games and my friends and things like that. And then when I went to New York, UMass, we played at Madison Square Garden a couple of times a year, we played at the Palestra. So my friends could come and watch us play. And uh, that was basically the reason. And my parents were were elderly. They were in their sixties when I was in college, which is unusual. And, uh, I uh, decided this was best to
1: go back, and that's what I did, and it worked out fine for me. So you brought up – Phil, I I don't mean to keep cutting you off. I just – my bad. (laughs) Um, You brought up something I don't think a lot of newer generation of basketball fans understand when you mentioned the freshman team because for a long time as a freshman you could not play – I guess, essentially varsity college basketball. Um, If you could describe that um, where you had to play freshman year. And I remember hearing stories of Lou Alcindor at UCLA couldn't play his freshman year and he would just dominate the freshmen. And then when they do mixed practices, he would dominate the regular starting five of UCLA. If you could explain how that worked essentially, and then the process of going from freshman to your final three years at the main level of college basketball. Yeah.
2: Well, what happened is when you played freshman basketball, you'd have a regular schedule and you'd have your games and you'd play before the varsity. So your game might start at around five o'clock at night. And then what happens is the fans would come in by halftime. You know, you'd have eight to 10,000 fans sometimes watching a freshman game and we'd play Kentucky and we'd play uh, Vanderbilt. We play Alabama. We played all those schools and uh, it was pretty good basketball at the time. And the freshmen, then what happened is you'd work out with the varsity, uh, sometimes at their practice, and then you have to go to your own practice and you practice twice. They take some freshmen and have you play against the varsity. And there was guys like Tommy Bowlwinkle and Billy justice was at, uh, Tennessee at the time who were all Americans. So it was great, great to have that opportunity. And then, uh, what was funny is, though, yeah, everybody in the Southeastern Conference tells you how great all the players are, like if you had Kentucky. All, Dan Issel was just finishing up in Kentucky, and LSU had Pete Maravich. And all of a sudden, I go to UMass, and I'm playing with this guy, and I go home and tell my friends in New York, I said, this guy is better than any guy I've ever seen. And uh, it was Julius Erving. So uh, you'd watch him play. And and, I, and there was another guy in the team, Al Skinner who was also an NBA player for six years. So, and then you had Rick Pitino. So we had some good players and it wasn't like the SEC where you get all the publicity and things like that, but it was, uh, it was fun playing with those guys.
0: Phil. Absolutely. You know, you mentioned playing with Dr. J. Was there a moment that you can remember where you were just like, wow, you know, this guy is different than, than anybody else on the court. Julius, Julius, Irving is
2: one of the nicest human beings I've ever met. I'm friends with him to this day. Uh, when we have a Zoom call with all the former players on it, he gets on and he's, he's front and center talking about uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago uh, at his statue dedication, all the players came back and it was like we were, uh, there was some candid pictures taken. of us just sitting around. It was like we were back in college. And he was just a normal, normal guy. And probably the best memory I have of him playing is on his 21st birthday, we played the game against Syracuse. They were nationally ranked and they came to our building, which was called the cage. And uh, the students would line up at 4 o'clock or 3 o'clock for a 7.30 game. And they'd stand out in the cold because the place only sat 4,500 people. And what happens is, they probably got f- three to 4,000 students in there and they'd pack them in. And during our warmups, they'd be saying to the students, can you please side closer together? Cause they're all bleacher seats and they wanted to get as many people in as they could. Well, on that night, Julius had 36 points and 32 rebounds. And we, Jesus beat-, Christ. <laughs> we beat Syracuse 86, 71. And after that game, You know, back in the day, you had the mimeograph machines that would take about 10 minutes to get out and get you the final stats. And I don't recall him even looking at the stats. It was like, this is what he and that's what always bugged me, that he didn't come back for a senior year, because I think he would have been totally unstoppable and would have been like Larry Bird did with Indiana State, because Al Skinner was a freshman at the time. He never got to play on the same team as Julius. Until the ABA, when they won an ABA championship. And Rick Patino never got to play with Julius. So, And Rick Patino and Al Skinner's freshman team was undefeated. So, uh, But Julius, that, and I can remember we played Iona. And they had a 6'11", 7-foot center. And a guy I knew, this kid, Bernie Soha. And every time Bernie would go to shoot, we'd all run the other way because we knew Julius was going to block it. And he was going to send it out by half court. So so we were breaking all the time. And uh, I can remember that game, too. And I can remember a game in North Carolina. We played North Carolina in Madison Square Garden. And Julius got fouled out. Uh, he had, And he always says he had four fouls called for offensive rebounding. So he said <laughs> those, he wanted he was very, he's still upset
0: to this day about that.
1: <laughs> so Phil, do you anything else real quick?
0: I'd we like have just to go, go on to that. Just real quick, going off of that, so obviously you knew he was good. Did you have any idea he was going to go on to this legendary NBA career? I mean, did did anybody have that kind of inkling, or was it just...
2: No, we know? knew good. I'll tell you two stories. There was one story where Al Bianchi was the coach and general manager or something of the Virginia Squires when they signed him, and they went over Jack Lehman's house and he signed the contract for, you know, a lot of money, millions of dollars. And Al Bianchi was in the kitchen with the assistant coach, Pete Broker, And he says to Pete, he says, Hey, I hope he can play. We've never seen him play. So <laughs> the Virginia Squires, I, I remember the next <laughs> Squires play in Long Island, New York. And Julius was leading scorer for them. And they had Charlie Scott, who's from North Carolina, who was a great, great player. And you uh, just knew that Julius was going to be something special. But there's another story about when he was going into his senior year or junior year of college, they were trying – Jack Lehman was trying to get him on the uh, American team going over to play the Russians in the summertime. And Hank Iber was the coach, and Hank wouldn't take him. And uh, what happened was that the the All-Star team was practicing in New York, and just two days before the trip to Russia, one of the players got hurt. So they called Jack Lehman up and said, hey, can we get this Julius Irving to come over and work out with us? We need another body. So Hank Ivers said he thought Julius was Jewish, a Jewish kid, because of the name Julius. He had no idea who he was. (laughs) Julius ends up going on the team. He's the leading scorer of that team. That's when he made his name. He made his name overplayed on this overseas team against the Russians. Because the Russians had never seen anybody dunk like this. And in college, there was no dunk at the time because of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Lou Alcindor, they took the dunk out of the game. So that's a Julius story where he ended up leading the team in scoring. And then the NBA started noticing. And, you know, uh, Red Auerbach wanted to wanted him to be a territorial pick if he had stayed in school. And he couldn't take him because he came out early. So he could end up am just
1: with- I'm trying to wrap my head around some of these between. uh, So I'll start here. When you play with somebody that's that good, that's that just a tremendous player, how much easier does it make your job? Obviously, but what's your mindset going into games when you have a superstar at your side, that's going to shepherd the load for you? No, he never shepherd the load. He was,
2: he was a, he was a team player. He never acted like he was better than anybody. He just played. And uh, funny thing is, after every practice, we'd work out one-on-one. He did it religiously. And he figured I was crazy enough to play with him. And then they also told me, because when you transfer back then, you had to sit out a year. There was no instant playing. So one of the assistants, Pete Broca, said to to me, he said, hey, we're going to get you in shape. You're going to guard Julius every day in practice. And we want you to grab him, hold him make it as tough as possible. So for my year of sitting out, I had to work every day against Julius. And uh, we became friends because of it. He appreciated when guys played him tough and just didn't let him have his way. And he was no different than anybody else. I mean, he uh, he was just a team guy. He could score 36 points and he would act like it was nothing.
0: Phil, well, and, and how much did that elevate your game? you know, coming into that next season, getting to guard Julius every day?
2: Well, no, I had no problem. I, for first game, I played right away, and uh, my first two games, I can remember we played Northeastern with with, uh, with Jim Calhoun, I coached, and, and then we played Holy Cross, and uh, I played 39 out of 40 minutes. So uh, I can remember that. Even the head coach, Jack Lehman, said at a, at a luncheon, he said, I never believed a kid would play 39 out of 40 minutes, but – you know, playing with Julius was easy. It was like he—he uh, he never big timed you. He was just—he was—and he was that way with everybody. I mean, you know, no matter who the person was on the team, he was just a good guy.
1: So fast forward to your senior year, you're named team captain. Um, you played alongside Rick Petino. Tell us about that experience. What was Rick like back then? Because everybody knows him from his coaching days, the the suave Italian-American, uh, great recruiter, the phenomenal X and O coach. But back in the college days, the player Rick, how was that like? And what was it like being team captain finally at your senior year at UMass? Well,
2: here's what happened. Is Rick, as a sophomore, when he came on the team, he, he had a problem where he started a fight with one of the uh, starting guards, And uh, the guy punched Rick in the head and broke his finger. So now he's out for the year. Then the next day, his best friend, well, the the other starting guard, uh, his best friend, who was a real good player, he started to fight with Rick because to retaliate, and Jack Lehman kicked Rick off the team. And to Rick's credit, Rick uh, sucked it up. He kept quiet. Then the next year I can remember talking to the guys uh, when I was captain, I said, I said to the guys, Well, do you want Rick back? And they said, Yeah, we'll take Rick back, but he has to keep quiet. If you just <laughs> <laughs> I sat with Rick over in his Lambda Chi fraternity room and we talked about it. And Rick agreed to it. And Rick did keep quiet. We had a good team. We ended up winning 13 in a row and, and beat Missouri in the uh, NIT in New York. They were ranked 12th in the country. We beat them and then we lost to North Carolina by a couple and uh, I'll give Rick credit. Rick kept his mouth shut and uh,
0: he played. So then getting, you know, into your coaching career, you were an assistant at Stanford first, and then you ended up at uh, Notre Dame with Digger Phelps. What was it like coaching under coach Phelps and, you know, another guy that was on the staff there when you were there, Pete Gillen, you know, how was it just learning the game from those two?
2: Well, no, it was it was great. And what I did is I, I was playing professional ball over in Europe, and uh, Dick DeBizel was the coach at Stanford, offered me a job in the, the Pac-8 at the time and called up, and I said, no. I said, I want to keep playing professionally. And then Digger called me, and Digger said, listen, go to Stanford and get, get experience, and I'll bring you on when I get an opening in Notre Dame. So I said to my fiancé at the time, my wife, I said, uh, what are you thinking? And we had to look on a map where Stanford was. And we went to California and spent three years out there, which was great. Stanford university, Bill Walsh was a football coach at the time. So I got that to get to know him and his staff. And, uh, then I ended up going, they got, true to his word. hi made Notre Dame and we went in there and, uh, we had some good teams. We played the NCAA every year. We had 11 of those guys, I think, uh, anywhere from Bill Lambeer to John Paxson, to Orlando Warwick to Kelly Trapuca, to Tracy Jackson, to Bill Warner, to Tommy Slooby. We had, uh, Bill Hanslick, uh, Bruce Flower. We had 11 guys of NBA draft choices. So, uh, we got beat by, uh, Magic Johnson, which, uh, we ran into him and Greg Kelser and Greg Kelser had a great, great game. We lost that game. And then we, uh, we lost to Danny Ainge on that full court shot where he ran through the team. and uh, But it was uh, a good time in Notre Dame. We beat, I think, eight teams that were ranked number one at the time. We beat Virginia with Ralph Sampson. We beat UCLA. We beat DePaul with Mark McGuire. We beat uh, Marquette when uh, Al McGuire had them ranked number one. So it was a good time uh, for college basketball. It was some great games because it was before ESPN. So. We had the regional and national games, like that's why we went out to play UCLA to get the LA TV market. Oh, we went and played Villanova in Philadelphia. It was all strategic to make sure we played DePaul and Marquette in the Midwest. We played Michigan and Michigan. We played in Michigan. We played at the Pontiac Silverdome. There was sixty thousand people. That's uh insane. That was all new stuff. They had Phil Hubbard and guys like that. So we got it. We uh it was a good era of college basketball, and then you get to see Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, what they did, and changed the whole game.
0: So you mentioned a guy you coached that I, I had already wanted to ask you about, uh, Bill Lambeer. Did he sort of already have that edge to him when you coached him at Notre Dame? Was that something that you guys had to keep no. in check?
2: or? Billy Lambeer was a, a California kid who played in the passing game out in California where, where everything was perimeter, and you set screens on the outside, and you look to shoot your shot that's why he always hit that step back shot that's from growing up in high school and playing California passing game but Billy Lambeer the people in Boston hate Billy Lambeer because of Johnny most and what he used to say with the old Celtics and call him you know every dirty name in the book Billy Lambeer happened to be born in Braintree Massachusetts he was he was originally from Massachusetts and then his father <laughs> went to Ohio and I think and then to California but Billy Lambeer is not was not a tough kid. there were some fights in practice where Billy uh, had standoffs with uh, Bruce flowers Bruce Flowers was a kid from Chicago a tough kid and he you know you didn't want you don't want to mess with Bill, with Bruce flowers and because uh, he was the same size as Billy and it was funny how Billy did it. Billy I think got the most out of his ability. And it was all an act. Another guy, Earl Curran, who played with Billy and in, in, in Detroit, said he and Rick one would practice the fouls they were going to commit to see if they worked. And he said as a second teamer with the, the Pistons, he used to get beat up by Lambert and, and Mahon trying out these moves. But you know what? You got to give uh, Detroit credit. They won championships. And I give Billy all the credit in the world.
1: So – we have a large contingent in our fan base that are IU fans. So I do want to ask you, spending your time at Notre Dame, any memories from those IU games and Bob Knight and those great Indiana teams, uh, Isaiah Thomas, etc.
2: Well, here's, here's the thing. is Bobby Knight and Diggle were both from the same area growing up. Uh, Diggle was from Beacon, New York, and Bobby Knight was coaching at Army. They were very, very competitive uh they were competitive and a lot of swear words are said by both of them at times and uh they that
1: that's you know, no <laughs> yeah
2: they would recruit the same kids at times and things and there were battles for that and i was friends with tommy Abernathy. uh a great great guy and, and i knew tommy from south bend and he was friends with me and his his best friend was the dentist in town and i can remember inviting danny white as as a friend of mine to uh, an IU Notre Dame game and got Danny's seats right behind the Notre Dame bench. But Danny comes to the game in a red blazer and Digger looks and says, who the heck is that guy right behind the bench? He's got a <laughs> And I'm saying, Oh Jesus, that's my friend, Danny White. So Digger's all upset with this guy in the red blazer right behind the bench. And uh, Danny then became the d- dentist, the digger and digger. Uh, always use them as a dentist, but the IU, another story is about uh, Isaiah Thomas and I have become friends in the last 10 years. There's a guy, uh, Ian Thompson writes for Sports Illustrated. Ian's a friend of mine. He, he said, you know, I see with these athletes you're representing them for over 20 years. Can you, can you talk to Isaiah about talking to the press and the media? And so I got to know Isaiah in a different way. You know, we wanted Isaiah or Notre Dame. But what happened is Digger offered, said to Isaiah and John Paxson, whoever commits first, I'm going to take it. I'm not going to take another point guard. And John Paxson committed. And then Isaiah, we had to tell Isaiah, hey, we're no longer interested. You imagine telling Isaiah Thomas you're not interested.
1: Insane, right?
2: (laughs) Right now, I would have taken them both. You imagine Isaiah Thomas and John Paxson as your guards. And, uh, but things work out. I guess God had a, had a, had a way for Isaiah. Isaiah, uh, is, uh, he's totally different than you think. I mean, when you meet him and talk to him and everything like that, and, and he's just a, he's a very, very nice guy. You know, he's from a family of 10 in Chicago.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say things turned out pretty well for Isaiah. <laughs> I would say he turned out all right.
2: He's a very good businessman. He's doing well. He's got a wine company. He's got a bunch of businesses. And he's doing well. And and his thing on the NBA productions, he's very knowledgeable. And uh, he's, you know, he's still got an edge to him. And and every once in a while, he'll say something he shouldn't say. But don't we all?
0: Absolutely. Phil? So... Then obviously, you know, you're a UMass alum, and you go on to be the head coach at UMass, but kind of walk us through how that came about, you taking over there, and then, you know, sort of you're getting out of coaching, and, and your reasoning behind that.
2: Well, no, here's what happened is, I was a young coach, I was like 30 years old, and I was one of the top assistant coaches in the country, and UMass contacted me and said, hey, would you be interested? And I thought about it, and I talked to my wife, Debbie, and we just had our first kid, and we were expecting a second kid, so she wanted to live in the east near a mom and dad, and and uh, that's that was my motivation for coming back. But uh, and I had really good kids that came there, but but they hadn't won game against a Division One team in two or three years, and they were struggling, and they played in the gym with a dirt floor. Honest to God, truth, they had a dirt floor, and underneath the basketball court, and uh, I ended up going there, and, and after my second year. I was just like, this is not what I am enjoying at all. I wasn't enjoying it one bit, and it was like a struggle. And so uh, I said to my wife, I said, you know, I could always find a job. And we went moved near Boston, right in town over from my mom and dad, and uh, it worked out very well because then I went to work with Converse, and there was a guy Joe Dean who was in charge of Converse, and Al Harden from Indiana. And we worked with Larry Bird and Robert, Robert Parrish and Kevin McHale. And then that led me into getting a job with uh, Bob Wolf, the famous sports attorney, who represented Larry Bird. So it all worked out for me. And I look back and say it was a blessing to get out of coaching because I had been gone. Uh, my son, Corey, who was the youngest one, I had been gone probably over 150 days a year. And my wife said to me, you know, he's he's going to be three and you missed a third. You only been around for a third of his life. And uh, so it worked out. What I did is concentrate on my own kids rather than 18, 19-year-old kids.
1: <laughs> I would say that worked out for the marriage a
2: lot better. Oh, yeah. We've been married 47 <laughs> years. <laughs> I mean, and the stress yeah. level like that. It's coaching back then there was no recruiting period. You could recruit all year round. So I was out on the road all the time. And then you had a scout and then you had a, it was not um, conducive to families. And then even Pete Gillen, I brought Pete Gillen in to Notre Dame. Uh, Gary Brokaw was an assistant there, a famous player for Notre Dame. And we had Pete Gillen and Danny Nee and Scott Thompson, who all ended up being successful coaches. Uh, But I think the, the thing that's, the best memory I'll have of coaching is the kids that went through it. I'm still friends with a lot of the kids that I coached at UMass and Stanford and Notre Dame. And um, it's been uh, great getting to know them. And then now to represent professional athletes, I got to, we represented over 40 NBA players and uh, it was good to get. Now they become part of my family, guys like Lafonso Ellis and Bill Cartwright and Byron Scott and Chris Mars, just some good guys that I've got to know over the years.
1: Tom, you've been around a long time and just the the list of names you just keep rattling off just blows my mind. Um, but I we appreciate your time. I've got two final questions for you. The first one will revolve around current oh, yeah. we look back
2: just before you say the final one one thing. I forgot to mention Kenny Skywalker. Who I ah, there we go. From from Kentucky. And when he went over and he played for the Knicks and then I went with him over to, to Spain when he played over there. Uh, what a gentleman, just a nice guy.
1: Talking about a Kentucky legend with Kenny Skywalker. Um, final two questions. The the first one, we'll turn our attention back to modern college basketball, since that's what we cover and what we look ahead to. We're in the process of releasing our, uh, or getting our magazine ready for the preview magazine. So I want to ask you about current day UMass. Brand new head coach, Frank Martin. I think he's a tremendous head coach. It was a tough job at South Carolina. Now he takes up your alma mater. Uh, When you look ahead to not just this upcoming year, but to the future of UMass, what are you feeling? What's maybe the chatter around the program right now? Um, They just pulled in a four-star kid. It seems recruiting. Um, Looking ahead to Coach Martin's tenure at UMass and what you hope to see out of it.
2: Okay.
1: Uh, I've met with Frank.
2: I've had breakfast with him. Uh, a super guy. He's a basketball junkie. Reminds me a lot of the guy I played for, Jack Lehman. He's just a, uh, a blue collar type guy, lunch pail type guy that, that Al McGuire would say, oh, lunch pail type guy. I think that Frank is perfect for that situation now. Uh, I think what's happened is they have a 10,000 seat, beautiful arena. They're all theater seats. It's, it's a gorgeous place. And they have a practice facility called the Champion Center that's uh, state of the art, even John Calipari, when he was there two years ago, said he said to me, So Tom, can you believe this practice facility? And uh, he said, it's even nicer than what Kentucky has. So I think uh, Frank will do a great job because his wife is from UMass and went there was a track star at UMass. And I think he feels at home. And I think uh, like he threw the first pitch out for the Red Sox and, and, and uh, is being actively involved in the community. But I think he'll get players because there are a lot of prep schools and uh, in the New England area that uh, will probably send them players. And I think that's the whole secret is who, who's going to send you the players. And I think he's he'll get a feeder system going and he'll get players. And just recently, you know, he's had that four star recruit. He's had, I guess he has two top 100 recruits that come in. Uh, he's going to do a good job because he's got the facilities. And the fan base needs to get activated and get back. Uh, they used to have a great, great fan base. And it sort of waned in the last couple of years. But uh, from what I'm talking to people, they're getting excited again. And uh, I think uh, it's only a matter of time be- before uh, he gets that in the right direction. All they want is you to play. In Massachusetts, it's different. They just, they could they grow up with the Celtics. And they grow up. Playing hard. They grew up with uh, Bill Belichick and the Patriots saying, uh, you know, you got to do your job. And if people come and play hard, those fans will come out.
1: So you just brought something up. So I'm going to change my final question for you because I think it's apropos. You mentioned about the local high schools and it's kind of who you know and connections. And you would know as well as any of us would know that back in the day, it was about making the connections with the high schools and especially the high school coaches. Now it's more so of who you know in the AAU programs. Back when you were coming up as a player and a coach, I do not even think AAU was really a thing. It was more like the five-star basketball camps, ABCDs, et cetera. So if you could explain what recruiting, being on the recruiting trail, was like making these connections with the high school coaches, getting in good with them so you could have that relationship so when a, a top player that you really want to target – you have that connection with the high school coach and it's more favorable to you because today, like I said, is more about not necessarily, I think the high school coaches have kind of faded to the background. It's more about the AAU coaches and their programs.
2: You know what it's about? It's about social media. It's about Twitter. It's about Instagram. It's about getting things out there and they spread rumors really quick. And if you're not favorably on Instagram or you're not favorable on social media, they can bury you and, and it's going to be hard to get players. I think the thing is these kids all talk now and they talk this, they're instant messaging each other and they're all talking, where are you going? What are you doing? What's your deal? Like I just saw yesterday that SMU is going to pay each student, uh basketball player uh, and football player, $35,000 a year. Um, yep,
1: from the collective. Yep.
2: Yeah. From the from the NIL. And I think, you need an NIL situation where you you can legally. Uh, what they're doing is they're figuring out this NIL and they're figuring out how to use it as a weapon in recruiting. And the Southeastern conference schools for years have always been very, very active in recruiting. And this is going to be like, they're watching each other do this stuff. And they're figuring out, Hey, here's what we're going to do. So now with the conference alignments and things like that, if you're not in one of those major conferences, it's going to be tough to get a to get a star player, and to get a top-rated player because the kids are going to talk. They're going to say, "Hey, I'm getting I'm getting a hundred grand to go here and play. Come play here." And it's a totally different world. It's a uh, a totally uh, you know before you get a high school coach, you control the kid. The high school coaches don't have the control. It's the AEU guys and it's the shoe companies that have control.
1: Yeah, I think that's uh, as accurate as you could pretty much sum it up for. Um, Tom, you've been phenomenal. Again, my mind, like your Rolodex just has to be hundreds of pages long because the names you kept name dropping, uh, whether you were playing coaching or out of the coaching world, it, it, you've been phenomenal. I know we've taken up probably more of your time
2: than we originally
1: anticipated.
2: One last guy I'd like to mention is a guy that's out in Indiana near you. It's a guy named Donnie Walsh. Oh yeah. Uh, Donnie Walsh is a family friend and I, my brother, my older brother played with him in high school at Ford and prep in New York. And then I played with Donnie's brother, Jimmy Walsh, who went to South Carolina. So, uh, and Donnie Walsh, there's a guy, Larry Bird, who ended up, uh, coaching the Indiana Pacers. That was through Donnie Walsh. And I just having a phone conversation one day and saying, Hey, uh, I'm looking for a coach. And, uh, I, I mentioned Larry Bird's name to him, and Donnie met with him, and all of a sudden, Larry ended up in Indiana.
1: Look at you! I, you just keep blowing <laughs> my mind, man. Uh, growing up a Pacer fan too in Indiana. You say Donnie Walsh, and like I remember all the great teams he helped was a part of building. And uh, you Tom, remember- you've been phenomenal. Go ahead. One thing.
2: One last thing. There was a guy, you remember how Byron Scott came to the Indiana Pacers and they had that great, great year?
1: Oh, yeah, 94, 95-ish, around there?
2: I represented Byron Scott, and I ended up, that's through Donnie and I, Byron ended up there. And Byron, I remember Donnie said to me, he said, hey, he said, Tommy, you're not going to believe what Byron did. Byron brought all his championship rings into the locker room with the Pacers after a couple of games he played for them and said, this is what we're playing for and try to motivate the guys. So uh, that Byron Scott ended up there because of uh, a high, just a relationship going back years. So that's how it used to be done. Now those things don't happen.
1: Well, as a Pacer fan, I appreciate you because those were – I remember being a kid, those were fun memories. Reggie Miller burying uh, the Knicks in the Garden. Uh, those were fun memories, man. So I appreciate you for Byron Scott. But, again, seriously, Tom, You've been tremendous. Um, it feels like 40 minutes have literally flown by here. Uh, we could, we hope to have you back on. You have an open invite. Hopefully we we'll get you back on whenever your schedule frees up a time or two throughout the year and just be able to chat more. Um, yeah. thank, it, it, you for, thank you for what you guys are doing
2: for college basketball. It's great that you're doing this. I think it's uh, tremendous. And, and people don't realize the behind the scenes and how hard you guys have to work just to put on a production.
1: Well, we sincerely appreciate that. And again, we thank you for being a part of the ECB Facebook group. Um, it all, all kind of started from there and sprouted to what it's becoming. The magazine coming out this year, um, we feel like we're very close. And it's because of men like you who give us the time and tips and tricks. And um, we really appreciate your time. And again, you have an open invite anytime. We hope to get you back on whenever your schedule frees up again. But Tom, before we get, let you out of here, anything you want to plug, promote uh, before we get out of here? No, well,
2: what I did is uh, in the last two years, I wrote two books. I wrote a book called My Irish Mom. It's on Amazon, and it talks about growing up in New York and playing basketball and having an Irish mother. And that was uh, Amazon. It was in the top 18 new releases. So it's just called My Irish Mom by Tom McLaughlin. And then there's another book I'm coming out with called Step Into My Limo, which talks about over 20 years of representing professional athletes. And some of these stories I shared with you, Are in the book. And so, uh, uh, what I tried to do was leave a legacy for my family to know this family history and then to let my grandkids, 10 grandkids, know what their grandpa, they call me Papa, to know what their Papa did for 22 years of his life representing professional athletes.
1: Well, ECB family, make sure you go search that book up on Amazon, scoop it up. And when the new books are released, make sure you get that. I know I'm going to be getting myself a copy and read through that. Tom, again, we cannot thank you enough for joining us tonight. And thank you for the kind words. Again, you didn't have to say that, but we do appreciate that. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you guys enjoyed episode 117 of the Everything College Basketball podcast. For Phil, I'm Josh. And for our special guest, Tom McLaughlin tonight, we hope you guys enjoy it. And we'll see you down the road for episode 118.